Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with writer Heidi Welson. She's been the opera critic at the Wall Street Journal for 25 years, and she's the author of Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America, just been published by Macmillan. And then in Chalk Talk, we discussed the recent strike by the Chicago Federation of Musicians at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Who's to blame? Who saved face? We're going to try and unpack that. Plus, later... Two-minute drill, you get everything you need from the past week in Opera Land with our team's hot takes on those stories. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard during our two-minute drill segment, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight, 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Got a really great show for you tonight. Oliver Camacho back in the house. I am back in the house. I've been in the house more than you have. Oh, uh, touche. Called out. Touche. Man, and Weston Williams hopping on me, too. Yeah, I'm That's... back. I'm back. And uh, Oliver, we're all back. It's a good a good little group we got here tonight. It is. We don't have any of our young our young tenors with us. Just the old crusty one. Average age in the studio really, really went up. Uh, the Bears lose in overtime to the Dolphins. Yesterday I watched that oh, with man. my kids. Uh, there were tears Gutting. in the living room. Yes. Mm, yeah. um, missed field goals and the whole works. See, I can't relate because the only sport I ever, I ever pay attention to is college football and the tide is still rolling, still undefeated. I mean, you know, when you're the best, there's just no news, uh, Oliver. You know, it's. it's I think the team needs. To, need, they've had some bad luck. They need to sacrifice a tall boy. <laughs> I think the style. You know, your 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 houndstooth coat needs to go. Mm. Oh yeah, I, I I am very stylish. I've never understood that. Now that it now that it's cold outside, I can look so good. You're you're just saying. Weston comes in the studio. And he's like, well, now it's winter. I got to wear my coat. I'm like, dude, it's October. <laughs> Okay, Again, it's October in Chicago. I am from the Deep South. This is, I am dying. My fingers are falling off, George. I can't take it. I'm turning blue. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Opera Box Score on WNUR. Heidi Wilson has been the opera critic of the Wall Street Journal for 25 years. She's a faculty member of the Rubin Institute for Music Criticism at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And her new book, Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, 
The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America. It's just been published by Macmillan. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Tell us, how did City Opera begin, and how did it become the model for the regional American opera company? Well, City Opera began in 1943. It was something completely different. It was found to be the people's opera, which was different from what opera was at that time, which was something that was grand and for rich people, um, like the Metropolitan Opera and the San Francisco Opera, and they hired very um, famous, usually, European singers and conductors, and they performed um, European repertory, and it was a very kind of um, imported art form. And the city opera, the idea of the city opera was to be an art form, uh, well, it was to be opera for the not-so-grand people, the immigrants and the uh, people who were who had enjoyed opera back in their home countries, in Italy and Germany, um, but couldn't necessarily afford to go to the Met. So they were going to um, be able to hear opera at popular prices. Um, and as a result, this company, which didn't have any money, um, needed to have some singers, and so it couldn't hire expensive singers, so it hired inexpensive singers. And um, as a result, I mean, it, because this model um, was actually successfully operating in New York City for all these years, um, I believe that the, um, the growth of the regional opera company was really inspired by it. Um, a lot of different cities in the United States decided they'd like to have their own opera companies, and they saw that um, that this could work as a model. You didn't have to bring in the, you know, the most expensive star from Europe. You could hire some nice young Americans who were um, <laughs> only too happy to, uh, you know, like work for all the salami you could feed them, um, <laughs> and it's like 25 cents or whatever. And um, and I also think that the um, the young artists program um, were also in a way inspired by this because the city opera format was really like these ensemble companies that um, were quite well-known in the you know, provincial cities of Europe where you had lots of young people on fest contracts, you know, doing all the shows. So, um, and that was how young singers learned their craft. So the, you know, sort of the young opera, the, the young artist program was really kind of an outgrowth of that, something that um, a, a way that young Americans could actually learn their craft. As, as I was reading the history of this, I was thinking a lot about, like, Commedia dell'arte troops and how, you know, it was just the same people just cast in different roles and mm -hmm. how maybe they, like, had just, like, one set of costumes that they just, like, turned inside out and mm -hmm. used for a different show. Can you talk about some of the conditions of working at the city, was it called the city center back then? Well, the city center, the, that was the theater. It was, it was on 55th Street. It was an old Shriners auditorium that had been taken mm. for non-payment of taxes. And in fact, you know, the creation of the city opera was really in part a real estate deal because the city had this huge white elephant of a building and they wanted to put something in it so that the property values in the neighborhood didn't go down too badly. <laughs> so you, you know, you basically had kind of a you know, kind of a grubby, falling-down building. And, you know, some of the singers who, um, you know, I, I had some oral histories of some of the, the people who worked there in those early years, and they said, you know, like, it was kind of dirty, and 
Um, you know, there was no soap or toilet paper or anything in the bathrooms. And um, bring you know, your own toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, no, you had to bring your own. And you know, and um, you know, everybody was everybody was sort of young and eager, but um, it was it was a little chaotic. Um, and there definitely wasn't any money. Um, you know, I love these stories about how. You know, you you use the set for um, you know Act Two of Traviata, you know, and then it turns into Rigoletto or something mm. because you know you just have like sort of have a basic set and you just use it for anything. And you know the people, the the major singer or the the major, if you like, the principal singers, you know, bring their own costumes. Um, and there's you know Beverly Sills tells the story in her um, in her autobiography about her, about how her mother went to the thrift shop and bought her a little fur piece for $5 when she made her debut in Flatermouth. I mean, that was pretty typical of the early years. Can you track some of the singers who might have really benefited from that experience of, you know, having to learn so many different roles at one time and understudy this and, you know, sleep on somebody's couch and like how, how hard they worked and how they actually flourished into, you know, full-fledged opera singers that we now recognize? Well, I mean, it's, you know, some of the, you know, some of the early ones were people like Brenda Lewis and Phyllis Curtin and, mm. you know, and of course Beverly Sills, who, like, made her debut there in 1955. Um, she was a working singer and, you know, she was, she was working in smaller places, but, um, you know, she didn't become Beverly Sills as, you know, as we did come to know her until 1966 when she had her big sort of breakout star moment as Cleopatra and Giulio Cesare. But, you know, there are other people um, later um, when it was still pretty much that, you know, they had moved to Lincoln Center. It wasn't quite so grubby, but they, you know, they still weren't paying them all that much. You know, somebody like Carol Van Ness, who made her debut there in 1979. And uh, Beverly Sills had actually, you know, heard her out in San Francisco where she was covering you know, covering something and said, oh, you know, like, why don't you come and, you know, audition for Julius? Like, he needs somebody for, uh, I forget what it was, um, uh, uh, Clemenza, I think, something like that. You know, and, and so she, she went down to L.A. and because the city opera was there at the moment, and she, um, you know, she sang for Julius Rudell, who was the general director at the time, and, and Rudell said, oh, he said, um, you know, our countess is sick. Could you sing it tomorrow? <laughs> and, uh, and, and Carol Vanna said, uh, no, I don't think so. But she did, you know, she, she was hired to, you know, come and make her debut at the, um, at the City Opera in, um, in 1979. And she did a whole bunch of things that you, you know, don't necessarily associate with Jilda. Her, but, yeah. Me, yeah, me. I mean, like, all what? kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, the most famous um, well, or the, her favorite one that she likes to tell is how she was um, singing her first Traviata. Um, this was in 1982, and she was sick. And she so got through the first act, and she was just, you know, sort of getting into the, you know, the money bit of Sempre Libero, and all of a sudden she realized that she was like, no, I can't go on, I can't do this. <laughs> this is the hardest, like, three minutes in all of opera, so yeah. I'm yeah, going to yeah, peace yeah. out right so now. She's just saying, like, joy year, you know, and then she says, like, she raises her hand, she says, I'm sorry, I can't go on, oh, right? Gosh. And, like, the curtain comes down, everybody's like, what, like, what do we do? 
So, um, <laughs> so she said, she said the, um, the understudy's backstage crying because she'd never learned the third act. Oh, God. Um, so, and, um, but it just so happened that Ashley Putnam, who was supposed to sing in Amelie the following night, had um, shown up and was in the audience to, you know, to cheer on her soprano colleague. And she came backstage to see what was going on. So Beverly still said, hey, oh, you want to sing Violetta? <laughs> and, uh, which, which, of course, she had done. I mean, it's like, it was like the first time. And um, so Ashley Putnam said, well, okay, as long as I don't have to sing Sempre Libra. So they said, well, okay. So they, you know, they had a little moment, and they found her address, and they started the opera again in Act Two. Um, <laughs> so, so they so they skipped the um, you know they skipped the Sempre Libera, but that was kind of the Carol Van Ness story. And then um, Carol says like Beverly Stills said when she actually came back to you know sing the role, and she said like just don't go out there and try and prove that you can sing it. Just go sing it. And she did. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking this evening with Heidi Wilson. She's the opera critic for the Wall Street Journal. And her new book is out a couple weeks ago, Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America. So I might represent like the older generation of people that listen to this show. Maybe I, I lean on, on the older side. <laughs> Come <clears> on, <throat> Oliver. Don't, don't sell yourself. But, but I would say that like, you know, my generation and probably some people younger than me remember you know, Paul Kellogg and how Paul Kellogg led to George Steele, which led to not having Gerard Mortier, which led to the end of New York City Opera. Mm -hmm. But as I'm reading this book, um, I'm really fascinated about how Beverly Sills came into the position of, you know, general director and artistic director and what she inherited and what she did with the company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, that was actually really fascinating because that was the, the part of the company that, or the first part of the history of the company that I really lived through because I mm. came to New York. I mean, I, I came back to New York in 1979. I was actually working at the Met um, in the education department, and so I was basically going to the opera every night, either at the Met or City Opera, and that was right when Sills took over. Um, so I saw all those productions, um, and I talked to Sills a number of times um, during that time. So... Um, Julius Riddell had, you know, created this kind of monster at Lincoln Center. I mean, <laughs> the company was the company was huge. I mean, there were there were years when they were doing, you know, close to 200 performances, um, both the, the the regular seasons, the very long regular seasons in New York, and then they had the months that they would do in L.A. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on, but. The company was always um, really perched on a knife edge um, financially. Mm. Um, there was always <laughs> at the end of the year, well, we'll, you know, well, we have enough money, and you know, Julius would kind of would, would go to John White and say, well, you know, like uh, find me, you know, find me the money, and so he would find the money, and the Ford Foundation bailed them out any number of times, and like by the end of the 70s, the Ford Foundation wasn't really uh, bailing them out anymore because they had decided they weren't going to fund culture. So Beverly Stills took over, um, like at this moment where she had really been one of the biggest draws of the company because they would build these subscription series around her. So you know everybody would like buy a subscription so they could see Beverly Stills, um, and then she wasn't singing anymore. So um, she comes in there and she's this diva, and you know she figures, okay, well you know, like I know the theater, I know the company, I can do this. And <laughs> the first thing that she's hit with is is an orchestra strike. 1979. You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> out they go. <laughs> and, 
the other thing is that, you know, she's just running around looking for money because you're always, you know, as, as an opera um, administrator, you're always looking for money, particularly when it's just when you're the second company and you don't have um, all the big donors lining up to give you lots of money. Um, and so, you know, they tell this story about how Beverly Sills used to fly around the country. She would leave on Monday night. She would fly around the country and, you know, hit up all her rich friends. And she'd come back on Friday with a handbag full of checks. <laughs> and she would Empty dump her them purse on the, on the desk. desk. Yeah. So they could make payroll. I mean, this was kind of the, you know, that's, that's what she did. And then in, um, but, and the, the short stopgap methods weren't really working too well. And, the, you know, costs were going up. And she realized in 1982 that she really didn't have enough money to put on both the fall and the spring season. And that was when she came up with this brilliant idea that they would combine the seasons. Um, starting in 1983, which the useful thing about that was that they didn't have to put on a season starting in February 1983. They could wait until July, which would give her some like extra breathing room to raise some money, and that made the um, that made the orchestra really mad because they had another you know they had another contract negotiation. I mean, it became they had a huge another huge strike in '83, and uh, you know we can talk about that later. <laughs> but it was really I mean it was a really tough time. But um, she did they did manage to get through that, and because she was so uh, she was such a celebrity, and because she did have all these rich friends, she was actually able to galvanize a lot of. Um, interest and support from some very rich people um, to to support the company um, who came who came to the company because of her and the other thing that she did which was um, which was something that Rudell um, had not been particularly interested in is she was I mean she was on the Johnny Carson show she was like this populist and you know popularizer and like everybody knew who she was um, and she sort of brought that populist spirit into the New York City Opera. So she was doing these operettas that she loved. I mean, they were just like tacky beyond belief, but she, <laughs> would, she would do them. And she did musicals. I mean, the, they, had ne- they had not done musicals. I mean, they did these kind of hybrid things back in the you know, early on, like Lost in the Stars, but that was never, they were really the first American company to, you know, really go in for the musicals big time. And she also um, she got a big funder to commit five million dollars so that she could put on an actual run of a you know a Broadway musical one one every year in February um, and you know they would that was extra work for the orchestra and she also wanted to have opera singers sing them because she thought that you know she she thought that musicals were an American opera art form just like opera was. So you know, she would do like uh, this, whatever it was. I mean, it was the Sound of Music and uh, the Most Happy Fella, <laughs> like yeah. all these kind of like uh-huh. things. I think chestnut. Um, yeah. And the other thing, of course, that she did um, was super titles. Right, right. And That's a big super one. Super titles. I mean, you, we forget, right? I mean, this was when you when you went to the opera, you you memorized the libretto beforehand because you know, like it wasn't in English and you didn't know what they were saying. I mean. It was like I was. I, I remember, you know, trying to go to Wagner the first time and saying, "Like, will this ever be over?" I, mean, I, just, like, I don't know what is going on here. But you know, the super titles were just—it was an absolute revelation. They did it in 1983, and people were—I mean, there was a, there was a lot of you know controversy about it, but not at the New York City Opera because people were just 
they thought it was like the greatest thing in the world. And uh, Beverly Sills was very pleased in her autobiography, she said, quite proudly. Some critics accused me of turning opera into a lowbrow art form that anybody <laughs> could enjoy. Well, so, like, how dare they? Did, right? I, I, I do think one of the I think the most interesting things about your book um, is that, you know, obviously the New York uh, City Opera went through these big ups and big downs, these mm-hmm. moments of populism and moments of sort of going back into themselves, um, uh, which is all really fascinating. But I, I'm kind of wondering to kind of broaden it a little bit as someone who has been watching opera on a national scale for the past uh, a couple uh, 25 years uh, for the uh, uh, for your career what are some of the initiatives for audience building and outreach that you've observed recently to actually be working well, what kind of lessons can we learn from the uh, city opera in that respect i mean i think that city opera um, when it, it started that final downward spiral in um, you know in the last 10 or um, 15 years of its life that it um, that the world had changed so much and it was not changing with it. I mean, it was still this you know sort of big repertory company trying to do you know some some really interesting stuff um, sort of balanced on the other end by um, you know twelve performances of really bad Carmens. Mm. Um, and when when you look at other opera companies that have actually seen the light and um, have realized as a result of things like like what happened to the city opera that the world is different and they have to be different so you get opera philadelphia basically reinventing itself as a completely different kind of operation you know a a 10-day festival of doing you know really sort of edgy interesting work that attracts lots of people who will come and see lots of things in a concentrated period of time and then you have someone like um the, the Los Angeles Opera, Christopher Kelsch there, who, in addition to doing his big main stage stuff, is doing um, stuff in other spaces, um, sort of edgier um, like things that appeal to a different audience. And you know, he sees that as not necessarily getting you know getting your hipsters to come to Carmen, but <laughs> that you're actually that you're actually serving a whole different piece of the community, which um, he sees as being very important. And to take that onto a bigger stage, you have something like um, what Opera Theatre of St. Louis has done in terms of their community connection programs and trying to talk to lots and lots of different people within the community who might not necessarily see opera as having anything to do with them at all, but to really establish the opera company as being a community citizen. So it started when they were doing Klinghoffer and they didn't want to have, um, you know, like this religious backlash that um, other companies had had when they did it. And so they reached out to all these different faith groups and created a really interesting community of people who saw um, the opera company as providing a particular important service in the community. And I think that that's, you know, that's really incredibly valuable. Heidi, we need to step aside for one second. Do you have a few minutes to stick around with us? Fantastic. Writer Heidi Wilson is our guest tonight. We turn to the conflict between Lyric Opera of Chicago and the Chicago Federation of Musicians. That's up next, only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM.
Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho. And Weston Williams. Weston's bundled up. up I'm here bundled up. I'm studio. freezing. I'm, 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 you know, the, the little Alabama boy in me is so cold. You're but a you disgrace know what? to this city, young man. You know what? I'm excited, though, because this Thursday I get to go to the Lyric Opera. No thanks which, to you. <laughs> <laughs> which was not a sure thing as of last week. Right here. Heidi Wilson is our guest tonight. She's been the opera critic of the Wall Street Journal for 25 years, and her new book, Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America is out now. Heidi, thanks so much for sticking around with us. The Lyric Opera Orchestra on strike through since last Tuesday because of the action of its union, the Chicago Federation of Musicians, has since ratified a labor agreement with the opera company. That decision came late Sunday afternoon after a tentative agreement had been struck between union leadership and Lyric Opera on Saturday evening. So, Heidi, as of today, the orchestra is back to work. You touched on this briefly in the first segment, but but how would you relate that strike and the overall power of the orchestral union to the strikes that you talk about in your book at City Opera? Well, it was so interesting to to watch that um, that strike. Um, happen and play out because the rhetoric was exactly the same as the rhetoric from the strikes in the 80s at the New York City Opera. Um, you know, the, I remember it because things in, in, um, that, that the union would say back in, like, in the 80s, we've been subsidizing these arts organizations for too long, you know, this <laughs> whole idea that somebody's getting rich on the backs of the musicians. And um, this insistence on maintaining all the guarantees in the previous contracts, regardless of how circumstances had changed. And, you know, they would say right out that they assumed that if the company wanted to find work for the musicians, that it could. Um, there was, you know, one of the lawyers who said, you know, like, if the companies are mandated to pay, they will find work, work for us and ways to pay for it. And that was 1983, and there was a 54-day strike, and they lost 74 performances. Um, and those, that persisted. There were quite a few of those um, until the early 90s when they you know, came to a different kind of idea about how to deal with this. And I also think that um, the, the concern about those, those strikes actually kept the company in later years when they really needed to have some open dialogue with the, um, with the orchestra union about how those guarantees really needed to be changed. But um, people were very leery about trying that again because they remembered those, those lengthy and very debilitating strikes um, from the 80s, and nobody wanted to go through with, 
through with that again. Um, so, you know, like I was really glad to see that um, that the Lyric Opera of Chicago um, job action ended as quickly as it did, um, because I think that it's really important for um, all the stakeholders in this to take a you know a less antagonistic view and and to look at the you know the environment as it is now and figure out ways to keep these, you know, opera companies alive. Um, I was also glad because now I get to see their Siegfried, which I was looking <laughs> so, forward to in November, and I was, like, very sad that um, it might not happen. So I'm sure that since you're on the press list that you got the multiple iterations of the press release. I mean, I got, like, oh, yeah. two or three in the same hour sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, this is a kind of a long and complicated question, but I'm, I'm sure you can parse it out. How does Lyric go forward? How do we heal? How do we? Heal? How do they heal the rift that they cause between, you know, the audience and the orchestra, really? And what, um, what do you think about the way the the public relations department characterized this strike? And you know, we both have friends that are in administration and who are musicians. How how do we, you know? Um, take both sides. How do we, you know, I understand that like administrations exist and those jobs are also very hard to get, maybe not as hard to get as being in the orchestra, but you know, in this day and age, like being in, in arts administration is also a pretty precarious thing to be. And so I don't want to villainize anybody per se. Well, I mean, I, I don't see it as being, I mean, these, these things are always antagonistic and that's, you know, that's part of the problem, I think. Um, and, I mean, I'm, as I, you know, as I said before, I'm really glad that they were, you know, that they were able to come to an agreement as quickly as they did, because the longer this went on, the uglier it would have gotten. And, I mean, I think actually, I mean, the, the press releases that I read um, that were coming out of um, Lyric for the administration were actually really pretty measured. I mean, they weren't saying, you know, these people are just ridiculous and you know, they were very respectful of, you know, of their artists, and they were just really putting forth a, um, you know, a, the, you know, the facts as they, you know, as they see them, the financial issues that, you know, that face the orchestra. Um, I think the, I think the orchestra was probably a little more belligerent as, you know, as they, you know, those, um, entities that the union entities do tend to be in order to you know, make their point. But, I mean, my hope is that there will be some degree of openness um, and transparency um, on the part of you know, all of these people so that they can um, really move forward with this and like, understand that nobody's out to get anybody and like nobody's out to take... Um, a living wage away from the away from the artists who actually perform the operas in any way, and that um, it's really in everybody's interest to find a way to talk about this that's not a negotiation, but is a way that everybody who wants the opera, the art form, and the institution to continue, um, that they can do so. Do you see Lyric as a healthy organization? No. <laughs> I mean, what are what are some of the signs for you, like the warning signals for you? Well, I mean, I looked at I looked at some of their numbers, 
um, like when I was researching the book, because like those stories that came out. I mean, there was there was one really weird story about like how they had a like you know sixty five million dollar deficit. I don't remember what it was. It was just this very strange story a couple of years ago, which turned out to be um, some some reporter who had actually misunderstand understood the financials, but in fact the gap between their income, both earned and donated, and their expenses was quite large. And they were filling that gap with, um, you know, with money from this Breaking New Ground campaign, which was supposed to only be um, throwing off a couple million dollars um, towards operating expenses. The rest of it was supposed to go to all this other stuff. And seeing that gap, like that just that city offered to me all over the place. I mean, it was just like it was the same thing that um, that city opera had. There was this just basic hole between um, expenses and um, and income, and they didn't figure out how to fix it. And um, I was really certainly hoping that Lyric had some sort of magic idea about how they were going to fix it, and you know whether the changes to the um, the musicians' agreement is going to really um, be a significant factor in helping to bring those two, um, the expense and the income side, closer together. I mean, I don't even know if that's enough. Hmm. Well, I'm so happy that you took time out of your day, and I know it's kind of later on uh, in the East Coast uh, to talk to us about this, and I'm really happy that I have the book. I'm not quite done with it yet, but I'm really excited to finish it. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting to like is, the really dramatic part. He has been yeah, so desperately reading yeah. all day. No, I mean, I was actually gutted to read about Christopher Keene and how he died of AIDS and how his last performance was like really devastating to the orchestra. And like, there are so many stories like that that are just all over the book that like I think are shocking for people who love opera and who know how it works and just to see like what the underbelly of this thing was this whole time um yeah it's it's so exhaustively researched and really easy to read i'm not like a good reader like i lose focus really quickly but i've been <laughs> i've been getting through it pretty fast so uh yeah and and i know people know you from your wall street journal column uh so we're just really grateful that you came on the show and we're encouraging people to go out and get the book that's fabulous it was really a pleasure to be with you okay well we'll see you when you're here for Siegfried then I'll be there. <laughs> okay. Have a great night. Thank you. Ciao. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. And we are back on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's Opera Box Score in your ear holes. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. In the house. So I have a lot of friends who are in lyric chorus and a number of friends who are in uh, the orchestra. And just to see this thing, uh, this fight publicly, especially on social media, it was it was really hard. And I did not want to get involved because I also have friends who are in lyric administration. And I'm not saying that lyric administration is a you know a team that runs very lean. They're they're kind of they have a lot of people there, you know. But nevertheless, like I said There's to Heidi, a lot of fat on that steak. And I said to Heidi, like <laughs> you know, I don't begrudge any of those people their jobs, their livelihoods. You know, it's not their fault that lyric has a position for that. You know, uh, but one could say that like yeah, there are there are maybe some some cuts that could be made, and they shouldn't be, you know, from the part of the organization that is like the heart and soul of the organization. This is a music organization, you know? 
exactly. you're complaining about your musicians and you're describing what the musicians do as 22 hours of work a week. Anybody who is a musician or who knows musician knows that like 22 hours of work is not, it's probably three times that easily. It's you know? a, well, it's a lifetime of work. Yeah. What it is, oh, yeah. what it is Absolutely. from the age of two or five or 10 Blowing that horn. All those years of music playing school. Playing that piano. Yeah, exactly. you're, you're, you're paying for a lot more than just the the amount of time you have a, a butt in a seat in the orchestra pit. Um, so I, I think I think a lot of the demands uh, from the orchestra were very reasonable. Um, and, of course, it did end pretty relatively quickly. I mean, it was, about, what, about a week or so? Yeah, we lost, what, two performances and some ancillary events. Not too so. bad. They yeah. made they made sure they, they had a compromise by the time uh, I, I had my tickets to see a Domineo, so it's all fine. <laughs> uh, they were really looking out for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, of course, the last time the orchestra went on strike, I don't know if you know this, it was back in 1967, and they canceled the entire season. Wow, so, I did not know that. Yeah, so this, it could have got, it could have been a lot worse, but I that think... was like 50 years ago, man. Yeah, way back in the day. Okay. You're so good at arithmetic, George. I'm always so impressed. <laughs> well, he was there. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think the big story surrounding this um, this strike is not so much necessarily the, the demands or the fact that the strike itself happened. I think it was more the reaction around it. Because uh, I, I know when I first heard about it, uh, I first heard about the, uh, uh, the strike um, you know, Last week, and then the, later in the evening, I got the official um, uh, the official email sent out to all Lyric subscribers, and I was very surprised by the tone of it. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, Dear Lyric supporter, uh, this is all quoted from the email. We are pleased to announce that Lyric Opera. Oh, that's the wrong one. This is the this is the one where they solved the problem. This is the wrong one. Ignore me. Okay, here we go. Dear Lyric Opera patron. You may have heard that the union representing our orchestra members, the Chicago Federation of Musicians, went on strike yesterday as we continue critical contract negotiations with them. Uh, and that's the first sentence. All, all fine and good. Uh, second sentence. All of us at Lyric are deeply saddened by this harmful decision and share a goal of resuming our season as quickly as possible. And so it begins. Right there, off the bat, the second sentence, uh, and this is sent out to patrons, mind you. I, I mean... Obviously, any union negotiation between union and management is always going to be contentious, always going to be some uh, uh, some high tempers, some some yelling happening. But this is what they sent out to subscribers, right? And of course, the union has no way of countering that because they don't have access to well. The, the administration list of has yeah, has the email list and has a way right. to, and the union doesn't. But now with social media, I'll tell you what: like everybody knew what was going on ah. and, and hurt. And heard the orchestra's side, and the or okay. orchestra put out their own press release mm -hmm. that was circulated so quickly. Uh, at least in my circle, it was. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. no, I got you. But the the, the way the, the the adversarial tone that this this takes, and I, I was just reading the first couple of sentences. Yeah. It continues. It, it it lays out all their things, and they always go fact. This is blah blah blah. Yeah. Fact in all caps, which which uh, just the fact that they. There, the sense for many, uh, many people in Chicago, uh, myself included, quite frankly, um, felt like uh, we, the administration, was trying to pit us as patrons against the orchestra, 
um, in order to uh, kind of vilify the orchestra into presumably taking a, a worse right. contract. They said Yahtzee agreed to this, Agma agreed to this, so it's the orchestra that's making sure that you can't see Itamineo tonight. Right, you know? that's exactly. the stagehands union and yeah. then the choristers and stage directors, stage management union. Uh, so, of which I'm, I'm a member, so obviously yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight. Just because you court. say fact and you put it in bold doesn't mean <laughs> it's a fact. And Oliver, if we've learned anything yeah. since 2016, <laughs> and one of the things that, that like was bothering me and all of those uh, emails and press releases was them characterizing uh, opera as being low demand. Like we are just we are doing this to meet the demand. Uh, we are taking away performances from the season and right. limiting number of performances per production. Um, because that's meeting audience demand. Exactly. Nobody wants to hear, we're doing less stuff, but we're also losing money. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. But is, are they even, they're not even addressing the fact that maybe it's your programming that's, yeah. that's part of the problem. You and know? We, we've talked about this before. Um, uh, th there's, there's very much a sort of, uh, uh, culture in many opera houses, particularly larger opera houses in the U.S., where um, where they're desperately trying to retain audiences by doing the same operas over and over again, or, or they try to uh, desperately hold on to the subscription model, which frankly does not work, and I don't think, uh, I think is only going to go downhill over the next uh, couple decades. Well, it's already gone downhill. Yeah, 20 absolutely. million subscription scales in 2008 down to 13 million today, there are, according to there, Lyric. There are other ways... To, to do things, or, or, or and even if you're not sure about them, there, there are other things you could try. There, there, there is fat you could cut elsewhere, um, but you, don't, you, don't, you can't take away the musicians from the opera. And, and setting yourself up as adversarial to the musicians really irks me on a really deep level. Uh, I think it, it, it really kind of shows uh, a fundamental misunderstanding about how at least the public perceives the relationship between opera companies and their artists. Um, because I think to an average you know, opera goer, they kind of see them all as one unit. So when you're, when you're releasing these statements saying that it's the orchestra's fault, or, or it, it really is this weird fracturing that I think fundamentally misses the point of, even if it's true, um, that's not how people see it. And that kind of short-sightedness and, and being out of touch is the reason that these kinds of problems are happening. Well, the other thing that didn't help was other press outlets all basically pitting the blame on the union. So when you look at headlines in the Times, like Chicago Lyric Opera musicians walk out as season opens, or uh, let's take one from the Washington Post, Lyric Opera musicians go on strike threatening opera season. Really only the Trib had a different narrative, which was their headline, Declining Audiences, Subscription Revenues Lead to Lyric Opera Strike. And even then, those are kind of pulled out of, of the many releases that was sent from the Lyric. And I do think it's a very interesting sort of study in how the difference between social media and traditional media and how it's covered, because... Uh, as Oliver said, you know, the story on Facebook, let me tell you, was a different story. Uh, uh, I don't think I've talked to a single person online or in person that was that 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 the lyric strategy of divide and conquer did not backfire on. Uh, I've heard some nasty things about the administration over the past week, um, which are very much which I think is very much the opposite of what the lyric wants. And I think it, it's possible it might have helped force this decision to go forward. It might have really blown up in their faces. The, um, 
now granted the uh, decision they eventually came to it was a it was a compromise neither side got everything they wanted um which is good union bargaining exactly. right like i'm not going to say that the chicago federation of musicians should have gotten everything they asked for right like you you've got to meet people let's not say halfway cuz it's compromise is right, not 50-50 right. but there got, ha, does have to be some sort of and give anthony but, freud was not tarred and feathered and paraded <laughs> around exactly. wacker drive <laughs> but like what i i i now i wonder like everybody lost a little bit on this right they lost a bit of public face like is there a way to solve this amicably to solve it with better optics i know I nothing mean, about pr and i'm so i truly am asking the question like is it that you just don't say anything to anybody on either side until it's been completely resolved well i, don't I can i can say that you know if i had been working for the lyric um as the person who even just as the person who writes that one email to uh the patrons explaining why the opera isn't happening this weekend I guarantee you I could have struck a much more, more balanced tone that would have been much better received, uh, much more... In order to go to that point, you had to actually work at it to really find that level of antagonism. And this is, this is just me. I, I have some PR writing experience, but that's not my job. I definitely could have done a better job in terms of optics, uh, and I think most people would. So I think this is a, this is a huge miscalculation on their part to pit the audiences against the unions. And I think, I do think it did kind of fail. So my question, I think, is will this result in some sort of soul-searching uh, on behalf of the administration to maybe push some positive changes through? Uh, or maybe that's just looking at it through some roles. Well, I may be speaking out of turn, but I, I think that Lyric's PR arm is talking to a very specific set of the audience. They're not talking to us, you know. Mm -hmm. That they're, is true. They're talking to ticket buyers and subscribers, and people that are in their database are older and have more money. And you look at the lowest ticket price at Lyric Opera without discounts. There are plenty of discounts out there if you look for them, but sure. if you're just like first time goer, you don't know how to find a discount, you're sitting in the opera balcony for like 70, 80 bucks. And you have a bad experience. You don't see anything. The sound is so-so. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that is not a way that you're going to build audiences. So people that are up there probably are just one-time ticket buyers and probably won't come back. Except you know? for me. I'm always up there. One and done. Uh, yeah. Now, I do have to say, there's this, uh, there's this article that went up on uh, Medium.com uh, by Aubrey uh, Bergauer. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. Uh, she is the executive director of the California Symph uh, Symphony. This was published, um, uh, I think, a year ago or so, um, but it was kind of making the rounds along with this uh, this whole thing going on here. We'll put a link to it on our website, yeah, operaboxcore. It's a fascinating. It's ki it's kind of technical. It's kind of long, um, but um, but essentially, in a nutshell, the entire thing talks about how the California Symphony, uh, granted, not an opera company, but similar, analogous. Um, is really bucking a lot of these trends by r sort of rethinking how they approach uh, getting new audience members in. Uh, to just kind of give you an example of the numbers they're pulling, um, the subscription uh, subscription revenue as the as of the time the uh, article was written, uh, the national trend is down five percent uh, uh, annually, whereas the California Symphony had jumped up seventy one percent. Uh, the overall audience uh, size uh, across the country down 11%, up 70% at the uh, California Symphony. These really in kind of incredible numbers. 
Uh, and really, it kind of comes down to um, really kind of a not doing a lot of the things the lyric is doing uh, in terms of outreach, because you know uh, the, the standard model across the board for classical music organizations is to if someone comes to your uh, opera, your symphony, uh, you get them in their system, and then you badger them until the day they die with uh, <laughs> with mailers, so with three phone years calls, later. emails, exactly. Um, and of course, that's a huge turnoff for most people. And uh, uh, I think the uh, the what was cited in this article was a ninety percent of first time ticket buyers never come back, um, which is uh, makes me very sad on the inside. If there's anything millennials don't want, it's to be told what to do. And exactly. What to say. But despite this, what they did was one of the major things that they that they that this uh, the symphony did here was uh, they just did not ask for a donation uh, at all um, after, uh, until year two. That was the one sort of the one big thing. Well, a couple big things, but that was the sort of the one big thing that most companies would be like, we need to squeeze as much money out of them as possible. But that one small change boosted their audience by just uh, repeat audience members. Their their younger audience members are, are coming in. The uh, It's a much more equitable sort of mm -hmm. pie chart um, uh, compared to other opera companies. Uh, and they're also individually tracking um, uh, ticket buyer sales. I think the main idea of this article is that the data is out there in order to fix these problems as long as you're keeping track of your patrons being aware of what they're doing and not pestering them 24-7, you can have a really big uptick in these sorts of things. Now, it always involves a little bit of investment, a little bit of risk, and that's what keeps a lot of companies from trying things like this. But there are other models out there, and I think it's becoming more and more apparent from these things, uh, from you know strikes and uh, uh, musicians not being paid enough and this whole thing at the Lyric that says that the old model does not work and you need to consider doing some other things in order to make it work. As Weston said, will the strike result in some soul-searching and some positive change at Lyric Opera Chicago? Let us know what you're thinking. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Kathleen Turner is back in action. That's next on America's talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill.
Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. 14 performers in named roles, 72 players in the orchestra, 40 chorus members, 5 dancers, 3 supernumeraries, and a live dog. Those are the forces in composer Rufus Wainwright and librettist Daniel McIver's opera Hadrian, which opened last Saturday at the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto. Kathleen Turner is joining the cast of Donizetti's The Daughter of the Regiment in the non-singing role of the Duchess of Cockenthorpe. The Metropolitan Opera said last week, asked to describe her voice, Turner called it kind of baritone. In early October, Boston-based countertenor Doug Dodson was a three-time champion on the season debut of Jeopardy. In his fourth round, he was defeated by a musical theater singer. <laughs> Three-day winnings, just over $60,000. And on this day, it was the opening of the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco in 1932, and the premiere of Strauss's Daphne at the Dresden State Opera in 1938. That is your two-minute drill. That was a, seemingly a bedroom scene from Act 3 of Hadrian with Thomas Hansen and a red-headed twink, bare-chested twink, <laughs> named uh, Isaiah Bell in the role of Antinous. 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 Usually I can't yeah. pronounce words. <laughs> Oliver, yes! what are you I just, doing? You finally I defeated yeah. Oliver <laughs> Camacho. <laughs> we, only had to, we just had to get a, an ancient Latin name. It would yeah. have been fine. But the here's the thing. Time. It's like when I was... Growing up and listening to opera, like Thomas Hampson was the original bear hunk, and like nothing would have made me more like stimulated than something like this, <laughs> which didn't exist like in the 80s and 90s, you know. Uh, so now Thomas Hampson's a little bit, you know, long in the tooth, but um, it's still nice to see him get a little twink a little on his twink lap, action. yeah, exactly, <laughs> to feel the young flesh, you know. I, I get Rufus Wainwright mixed up with Ben Folds, I don't know why. Ben Folds is not gay. Okay. I don't oh, well. think he is, at least. Yeah. I yeah, mean, Rufus Wainwright is so gay. That's the, the main distinguishing factor. Yeah. That... I mean, isn't it for everybody? You know, gay. I'm just gay. saying musically, like when I listen to their music. I... So not the same. I don't know where that you, that comes from. You listen to Rufus Wainwright? Not really. Okay. Well. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Doug Dodson. We all, so those of you who listen to opera now, you know Doug Dodson very well. But uh, he did make it to to a four rounds of Jeopardy. He lost in his fourth round. And this is um, Doug Dodson of the uh, famous Dodson scale exactly. that we frequently employ. So on his uh, second night, uh, his Tuesday performance uh, of Jeopardy, or his uh, competition of Jeopardy, uh, he didn't know the answer to Final Jeopardy. Uh, oh, but was he it? was so far, I don't know what it was. He was so <laughs> far ahead of every other player. Oh my God, he still won? Yeah, he still won because he had uh, way more than double the second per second place person. Well, that's nice. And so he his answer was, uh, what is back rolls? Uh, and then Alex Trebek was like, what are you talking about? I was like, don't worry about it. It's going to go viral. And <laughs> it, it did go viral because back rolls apparently is some reference to 
uh, a character on Drag Race who's like very famous named Melissa Edwards. And yeah, the, the whole drag community Man. was so excited to hear, you know, one of their own as a Jeopardy answer. And Alyssa Edwards even went on like her Instagram page and like responded to it and makes very happy. So Dang, it did... he's got guts to do that. Yeah. I mean, was he guaranteed a win at that point? He yeah, must yeah, have, yeah. Oh, he was guaranteed the win. Yeah. Okay. So he unless he yeah. foolishly bet everything, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, they coach you on what to bet, apparently. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. And in, in the commercial break right before Final Jeopardy, oh. they're like this, you know, they talk um, tactics with you. Oh, that's interesting. How do you know that? Because another friend was on Jeopardy. And I don't okay. say that to take it away from Doug. Clearly, okay. he had the, the knowledge and the know-how. Yeah. Back rolls? Wow. Back rolls, yeah. I don't know. I'm All not right. a drag person, but sure, back rolls. Yeah, so. no, no. I don't what know. is back rolls, you exactly. say? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. San Francisco Opera, the War Memorial Opera House. It really is a gorgeous theater. And you know what? It's the right size for an Thank opera. You. I don't know how many seats Thank are in there. But Lyric Opera really is a barn. Is it over? Was it over two thousand people that Lyric seats? Like uh, Lyric is like so. thirty six hundred or okay. something. Okay, it's yeah, huge. Whatever it is, it's huge. And yeah. you know, I went to the um, Lyric Ryan Opera Center finals, and I don't want to take away anything from those singers. They were all great. But one thing to get into that program is you got to be loud. You got to be able to be heard oh, in yeah. that space. Yeah. I, I just looked it up. It's 3,563 seats. Close. Close, That's like yeah. my high school class. Like my, my high school, um, all the, the entire high school was like around that many people. So yeah. that's a lot of people. A lot, a lot of, of horm- it's a lot of hormones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, San Francisco, it's, it's certainly a smaller house. It's got that beautiful chandelier. Yeah. That, which is sort of... Lyric is a beautiful place. It's just... It's just uh, it's just big. It is very large. Too big. I, I, I do have to say, acoustically, it, for a house that size, it's it is pretty good. Uh, I I I I don't mind actually being up there in the third balcony. Although if I'm in the second balcony, I might as well just leave. You know, there's. But it's no an anomaly. Like none of the European opera houses are remotely as big as as well, the that, American that, that's opera houses. That's such a houses. weird thing because you know, you would think. Well, I, I think I know. I mean, obviously, the reason why is that, you know, it's kind of started in New York City. That's sort of the center of culture. New York City's enormous. Uh, same sort of idea in Chicago. There's no real estate in New York City, though. That's true. So, uh, but but it's, it's all about, you know, sort of uh, uh, betting your entire hand on having one audience forever. Um all the old, all the old houses were based on um, the old system of uh, uh, opera companies being, you know, fighting with each other, competing, making money. There wasn't really a sense of artistic camaraderie between companies until really relatively yeah. recently, yeah. when they started collapsing, um, you know, uh, at various points in, you know, uh, with depressions and recessions and. Uh, and it's it's one of the reasons we have such a problem with the grand opera model persisting in this country. And I'm not bashing grand opera. I think it should absolutely go on. I would be heartbroken if the lyric went under. Um, but it is not going to be the primary model, and we should stop pretending that it is. You know, there, there's lots of ways to do grand opera. Yeah. Man, it goes fast. Oh, Heidi yeah. Wales said on the show tonight. That was awesome. She was great. She was great. Good call, bad call. Um, what do I got for good call, bad Something call? Something about uh, Arts in the Dark Oh, yeah, thing? the Arts in the Dark Parade is this Saturday, uh, October 20th. It's on State Street right here in Chicago from Lake to Van Buren. Um, it's a celebration of Chicago's performing artists. Like 100,000 people attend it. 90 different groups are parading down State Street, Ooh. singing, dancing, having a great time. And all of it in the dark. Yeah. Go check it out. Arts in the Dark. Always parade. staying on brand, George. 
Um, I went to the uh, rebroadcast of the HD Aida with Anna Dutrepko. Stole the show, Anita Rockfellishvili. She was so good as Amneris, mm. and it made me want to listen to more of her. So I went to Spotify's and I got I listened to her album called Anita. And if you have the Spotify, check out Anita uh, and check out her Veil song from Don Carlo. Such good singing. Did you think that Natrebko's skin makeup was dark? No, it looked like she had a tan. Right. But she did have dreadlocks or, or braids, I should say. She had M- maybe braids. they adjusted the filters on I it. I think for they the did. If you, look, yeah. if you look at the picture, she does yeah. look a little lighter in the live and HD performance. Well, you can't yeah. see anything in that production anyway. There's yeah. like it's no so light yeah. on stage. You got a good call, bad call. Uh, right? Well, uh, I don't know if it's a good call yet. Lyrics back open. We're going to see what happens when Idomeneo goes on with a little less rehearsal than usual. Well, that'll be exciting. With Matthew Polanzani yeah. and Janai Brugger, who are both guests on Opera Box Score. So if you're interested in hearing what they have to say about their careers, Check out some back episodes of Opera Box Score. I'm sure they will be just fine. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please, leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if you go on strike. We're back on Monday, October 22nd, 9 p.m. Central. More opera headlines, more hot takes from us on those stories. Hey, please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.